It's not about having an ego, it's about having a very strong self-concept and that's different. The strong self-concept is I know who I, are, I am, uh, warts and all. I've got great self-awareness. I know what I can do and I know what I can't do, right? From a skills perspective and a gifts perspective. And I'm very clear with my clients, here's where I play, here's where I don't play, right? I'm absolutely so in your face about that. I know what that looks like. And so I say to people, self-concept is, this is what you're good at, this is where you suck, because we all got that and own it, right? So good self-concept. But in the areas that I, that I know or that I feel confident in, I'm, I'm very confident and I have courage in those things. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are just some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is the winner of the 2022 Momentum Trailblazer Award, CEO and founder of Reinvention Consulting Group, and the author of the thought-provoking book, Unreasonable Ambition an award-winning Australian organizational psychologist for ASX 20 and Fortune 100 companies globally. She is a graduate of the University of Western Australia, Murdoch University and Curtin University, where she took modern languages and theater, law and psychology as her majors and degrees. She is a highly recognized transformation expert, leadership coach and business strategist, who has captivated the attention of Fortune 100 companies, private equity firms, and even sporting organizations. She's a former journalist with ABC, and her works have been published and featured in the Australian Financial Review, The Diplomat magazine, among others. I have a pleasure of welcoming a catalyst for psychological transformation, the champion for change, and most importantly, a proud mother of two. Vanessa Vershaw. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Oh, so great to be on the show, Craig. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. So I'm currently talking to you. You've got a beautiful view out to the ocean on Western Australia. Where did I do. You, where did you grow up and what was the big dream when you were running around the playground? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I love it that that's turned on me. That's normally my question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I actually started off in life wanting to be a paediatrician, believe it or not. Oh. Um, grew up in Western Australia, wanted to be a paediatrician, got into medical school and then realised that I actually faint at the sight of blood. <laughs> so probably didn't set me up well to be that doctor uh, that I wanted to be my whole life, but then moved into journalism and psychology later. 
um, but definitely didn't start out in life wanting to be a psychologist, but certainly to serve people was always something that was in me. Yeah. As someone involved in organizational psychology, uh, when you reflect back to you as a teenager, what is something you see now that you didn't see when you were that child? Yeah, look, I uh, was that was a very strange child. I was always much more comfortable in the company of adults. And even from the age of around five, and this, this is going to sound a bit creepy, but it really wasn't. I was at a party with my parents and they couldn't find me. And when they found me, I was actually um, giving counselling and coaching to this man at the party in the front garden who was telling me his problems. <laughs> And he was listening. Uh, you know, I can imagine how this looked to my parents and they were like mortified. But actually from a very young age, I have been able to see and hear things that others weren't able to and really look into the souls of people and understand what they wanted and their unmet, unmet needs and then provide motivational energy around helping them get there. And so that started really early in life. And it's why I became an organisational psychologist and not a clinician. Hmm. Uh, so they're quite quite different kind of areas of specialisation in psychology, recognising that my skills were in working with people who were at a certain point where I could take them from good to great and help motivate uh, their ideas to action um, and get their mindsets in the right place. So that's kind of a, always kind of known this, but it didn't come into full play until later in life where I tapped into those gifts that started early on. Yeah, beautiful. I think we would have had a good conversation at five years old. Uh, <laughs> uh, for Indeed. me, it's yeah. a bit creepy, I know, right? How it sounds, but it really wasn't. He was a lovely man. Yeah, but I mean, it, it just kind of resonates with me because I was very similar in in the way I was as a kid too, where I'd, I, I much preferred the adult conversations and, I've always had people come to me and say, you always ask questions that no one else does. You're unique. And so, uh, yeah, it's kind of fun to understand that a little bit about you. Uh, so you went off. I'm sorry. I think it makes it hard. I think it made it harder to relate to the kids in school. Mm. It was one of those things where it had a forcing function on my own evolution because I didn't fit in. It forced me to seek knowledge and wisdom early on as well. And so that's, that's a really interesting byproduct of being like that from a young age is not not feeling like I ever fit in or that I belonged mm. with my own age group and having to actually go out and build skills and capabilities and view and knowledge that enabled me to function in a different in a different world. Yeah, fascinating. Fascinating. And so going through you know, your teenage years, obviously you were looking to uh, you always sought out more adult conversations, but did you find yourself as more of a natural leader or follower? Uh, always leading. I always just, I've always danced to the beat of my own drum, partly because I didn't fit in, right? Uh, also, English wasn't my first language. So I come from a, a Greek, Italian, Dutch, Norwegian background, and we didn't speak English at home. Mm. So I spoke different languages in my head and uh, was always very strong in my views and thoughts uh, and just set trends uh, just inadvertently. So, for example, I remember at high school, really silly one, I started to do that my hair like a, a Fanta can had been rolled at the front and it was totally wacky and out there. Mm. 
I didn't care what the other kids thought. Right. And that's the interesting thing. I actually didn't care. Mm. This was who I was and I did my hair and then I got absolutely annihilated, of course, by the other kids. And then about two weeks later, all of the girls started to copy my hair. <laughs> and this has been an ongoing theme throughout my life is or often being uh, the catalyst for something new and then having to deal with the, with the fallback of that and the blowback of that before people got to where I was. So it's actually been quite an interesting and challenging life because when you are the first person to do something, you know, there is a lot of, it comes with a lot of judgment and criticism mm. from people ready to throw arrows at you or shoot arrows at you at first instance because of the fear and it's new. And so it's really interesting how that has kind of followed me. Thankfully, I'm at a place now where um, I'm good with it, but it's taken a long time to be able to just deal with what comes with standing alone and being, you know, a first mover on things in my life in so many aspects. Beautiful. I say own it. That, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> you got to own it. You got to embrace embrace your weirdness, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you go into university where you're kind of learning everything that they have known from the past, but you're a bit of a trendsetter. How, how did you find that being in an environment where you're learning you know, a lot of things that have already been done before, you're very pioneering nature, you have a pioneering nature and a, and a huge curiosity. How did you go through that, that phase of your life in education? Oh, look, I got, got voted off the island many times. I got called in by the academics. I got um, raked over the coals. So, for example, uh, you know, when I did my uh, modern literature and arts degree, which was the first one I did specialising in drama, I didn't just direct Hamlet. I got the actors to do it in the nude, you know, uh, and screw you. This is what we were going to do to be more authentic and, like, do something different and have the wow effect, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been like that. It's like, that sounds great, but what about if we do it like this, you know? Uh, another one I did is I ran um, for the org psychs, the organisational psychologists, when I was lecturing there, the, the faculty said to me, oh, look, we want to bring you in to teach real-world skills. I said, okay, great. So I ran, I came up with the idea of not your traditional testing process, but let's run org psych idol, where we have a panel like The Voice and they actually have to pitch why they matter, the services that they want to bring into the world and why anyone would care. Mm. You know, the students rated me 100%, but the faculty never invited me back. So, you know, <laughs> just this is my life. It's, you know, going into these institutions, traditional environments and blazing my own trail, being myself, um, staking my claim without apology and then dealing with the aftermath of that often but being loved or hated by the people that have been around me. So it's been amazing because you know, it's almost been like these Moses moments in my life with people around my ideas where 50% say, oh, my God, I so love you. My God, who is this woman? Come on in. And then the other half are saying, oh, my God, this woman is a, a fruit loop. Get her away from me. And so I have that impact on people. It's one or the other. It tends to be. It's very very rarely that I see the midpoint in terms of the reaction to how I show up and who I am and 
where I push people to go in terms of their thinking and their own evolution, which is around, you know, just just be who you are and embrace your uniqueness. Copy no one. Uh, there will be consequences, but how can you afford not to be anybody other than yourself? And that's really the lessons that I've brought through through my own experiences. But I'm not going to lie, it has been tough on occasion. Mm. For, I've had to weather that as well. As I say in social media, if you don't have trolls, you're not playing a big enough game. <laughs> yeah, so they tell me, right? So they tell me. <laughs> um, you went into journalism for a little while. and And obviously in journalism, you know, having an opinion or, or, or positioning yeah. something is really important to get eyeballs uh, onto the screens or eyeballs on onto paper or ears when, when you're listening on, on radio, etc. How did you find you know, having such a unique perspective on the world and being able to position yourself, how that works in a media sense where quite often the, the particular media company may have a certain view on the world and you've got to kind of try and align it to that? I was definitely challenged by it. I'm not going to lie, Craig. I mean, I was challenged by the restrictions and the perspectives that I was, uh, and the things that I was asked to do and the type of angle I was asked to take on, on stories. It's why I left. Um, so as an example, I was sent out, I'm a deeply empathic person. That's why I'm not a clinical psychologist, right? Contrary to popular belief, to be a very successful clinical psychologist, you have to have distance. Mm. And I find that really hard. I feel everything. I feel yeah. it, you know. So, so I'm not a great clinical psychologist, which is why I didn't pursue it, even though I did get a scholarship at one point with a real famous guy. Um, so as an example, I was asked to cover this story on dementia. And we went to this uh, old people's home and there was this husband and wife who'd been married for, you know, 60 years. And and I was told, make the, make the, make the old guy cry. We need you to make the old guy cry. And I said, sorry? They said, make him cry. That's going to make for a better story. And there's just one example of where I just reached a point where I said, I just can't do this. Mm. Perhaps media's changed now. Who knows? Um, I'm in and out these days, so I'm not, you know, employed by any um, any news broadcaster, but I go in and do different spots. But that's just one example, and I, and I won't tell you some of the worst ones. Mm where I just said, look, screw this, I can't do it. And, in fact, I went to the um, the executive producer of the of the network I was working with and I said, and he said to me, you know, do you think you're cut out for this job? And I said, you know what? No, I'm not. Thanks very much, I'm gone. And that's when I went into psychology after that. So I did journalism before psychology because I recognised that my gifts were more around serving and helping humanity evolve with compassion and kindness and my strength than it was to actually find the story um, and I just couldn't do it so these days I still I still storytell and I still find the story but I get to pick how I tell that story beautiful uh, and very important to me how I narrate the stories for people so good. with honor and respect yeah so so good uh, so talking about empathy here um but you're also bringing up the word compassion uh, you know, we're hearing a lot of people talking about, you know, we need more empathetic leaders. And then we're here saying, oh, you need compassionate leadership. But there is quite a difference. You know, there's a difference between sympathy. There's a difference between sympathy, empathy and compassion. Um, 
and you know those skills uh, are quite different in the way that we approach someone's feeling mm, very and, much so and so is empathy the right skill that our leaders need to be learning or is it more compassion I think it's both because they're different things. So if we take sympathy, sympathy is quite dangerous. So sympathy is what people think empathy is, right? And it's the biggest myth. Mm. Sympathy is that when you're crying, I'm crying. So I'm going to take on your emotion and be your emotion. So if you're sad, I'm sad. And if you're a leader, for example, and you're trying to help somebody get through something, becoming their emotion isn't really helpful, is it? You yeah. don't doesn't give you that objectivity and distance. So sympathy is not a good thing because it doesn't get anybody anywhere, right? Empathy is I am able to take on the emotional perspective of the person that's in front of me. So I can see the world through their eyes. I don't feel the emotion, but I can see the world through their eyes. And this is really important as a leader in being able to see and articulate and respond to, for example, a customer's unmet needs. So what is it that my customer wants from me? And what is the need driving it? If you can, if you can get into that mindset and build your empathic skills, then ha that helps to drive better customer service orientation and for your products and services to be more targeted at what your customers want versus what you arrogantly believe they need. Mm. So that's very different, right? So in terms of org effectiveness, it's a much better skill to have. Compassion is the next level. Compassion is almost the product of empathy where we're actually looking to have the impact or create the experience where people feel like they matter. People have meaning in their work. Their jobs have motivating potential. Where we're actually creating an organisation where it's not a team of people, but it's almost a tribe of people where we are connected deeply through purpose mm. and a sense of belonging. And why that's really important, why the compassion is really important is because the compassionate organisation is the one that's able to achieve collective resilience. Why is collective resilience important? Because given this crazy operating context that we're being asked to navigate right now, uh, we have to be able to step into that storm and be the storm at scale. Mm. And that's what compassion and compassionate leadership brings to an organization so that people can build their resilience at scale and step into it with confidence and courage to make good decisions to evolve to emerge and to find new solutions yeah. because people don't learn when they're afraid so that collective resilience comes from the compassionate culture and leadership impact and that's the relationship between those three states of being Mm, very good. I, I always think of compassion as looking through the lens of what's holding you back and how can I help yeah. in, in a yeah. way, or um, what's the missing opportunity and how can we support you with that in a way? Uh, yes, so, it's the action of empathy. You're yeah. right. Yeah, which is beautiful. I, I like that. Thank you for sharing. I, I love the way you, you position that. It was really, really good. We're... Um, so people being able to shift from, you know, a sense, you know, say if someone doesn't have strong empathy or, or even mm -hmm. compassion in a way, how can they develop that as a leader? 
It's really, that's a really fantastic question. I think that's the million dollar question working really heavily in technical organizations. You know, a lot of leaders say to me, oh, you know what, I'm just, I just don't care. I don't care, you know. Uh, and I say to them, well, you do. You do care about somebody or something, right? Uh, but it's about, I think, different leaders or different people show it to different degrees. As human beings, we're born as empathic creatures. That's how we connect. Mm. You know, that's how the race connects. But you're right. There are people who really struggle to actually overtly show empathy or show that care. And there are a lot of techniques that you can actually rely on to build what I call tactical empathy, and that's very specific. How do you actually build your tactical empathy so that you build the habits around showing empathy to become empathic? It's like in, it's like driving a car, right? The more you practice empathy through tactical skills, even if it's not natural for you, the more it will become part of who you are over time. So I believe anybody can build empathy. That's my very bold statement, yep. but I, I see it all the time. So it's different techniques. I mean, and we could spend the whole podcast on this one, such as, um, and I train people in this, right? So how can you build as a first pass when you're meeting with someone for the first time and you're needing to build a strong relationship with them for whatever reason, how can you actually create the conditions for a safe environment? So, you know, there's the one thing. Let's create how can you actually show unconditional positive regard, which is what we call it in psychology, which is showing that you care, and things like using their name, um, asking questions about where they've come from, you know, trying to find out who they are personally, what matters to them. So interrogative questioning is another technique that we use as well. Mirroring, you know, reflecting back. Uh, there is a whole host of different techniques that I teach around this to actually teach people to get into the mindset and the practice of tactical empathy. And there's just a, a couple of examples uh, that are really, really powerful to break through those barriers of people who don't really think they're empathic. And, of course, Silicon Valley has been doing it for years, right? A lot of my background, um, particularly when I had a big career in North America, is bringing empathy even into the selection process for new candidates because it's you know it's recognized as the sweet spot it's it's the differentiator for us to be able to understand the perspective of another and solve or build product and service for that is actually part of our competitive edge so we do we used to do something and i can't say the name of the organization a very well-known tech organization where if we were trying to decide on two candidates to bring in and that's where i'd support this business we'd actually ask them empathic scenarios sit, sitting next to each other, different empathic scenarios to see who was actually able to answer from the lens of I get where that, that person's coming from and I'm going to listen to that to drive my solution around this product or service yeah. offering. So there's quite it, it, there's a lot right now uh, going into the selection of empathic leaders within businesses because we've recognised the power of it and what it brings from a competitive advantage perspective but also from a culture perspective and how it creates more meaning and belonging within the people, within the organisation. So it's absolutely a skill set that we need um, in this new world of work. Yeah, I think it's when you're one-on-one -on -one with someone, how do you make them feel like the most important people in, uh, person yeah. in the room? When you're with a yeah. group of people, how do you feel like, uh, how, do, how do you make them feel like everyone belongs and is important collectively together, which is a little bit more challenging to do 
then it is it is Craig but I think even in the work that you do yourself you know this piece around let's talk about leadership there and empathy is the, that the best future leaders are those who are able to narrate the future and narrating the future comes from connection being able to tell the stories of the future to our people hmm. that connect with them more deeply so that heart head mind and hands um, are able to come into that story and then really, really engage and envelop those people that a deeper sense of connection and belonging, which is what people want. You know, people's needs have changed in organisational life. And COVID's exacerbated that. It was already there, mm. but the COVID experience of the world, I think, has exacerbated or brought to the fore even more uh, our need for deeper connection and feeling wanting to feel like we matter yeah. you know and people are voting with their feet you know i laugh at this great resignation stuff that came out and and employers saying we don't know why people are leaving are you kidding really are you you a muppet are you what the hell um, I was hearing that, and I actually went on a. I went and did a whole panel with these with these leaders to to go live and say, "People, um, why is this surprising you? People may have got to come first. Mm. People have got to come first. People matter, and without them, you are screwed. So, what are you doing about that? And it means you've got to change the way you lead, and you've got to go from one to one, which is directorial telling, to one to many." You have to use your ability as a leader to connect with story and self to create greater engagement so that you can impact one to many so that we can have that meaning and belonging at scale so that we can keep our people there right. to be happy and fulfilled right and that's such a big part of this We're, we had a we put on a big event a couple of weeks ago called reimagining workforce culture and one of the sessions was on bringing an invisible culture to life and you, I'm sure you've come across this many times where a lot of cultures, people cannot explain what it is. They don't even know. They, they know there is a culture, but they can't actually visually see it. Mm -hmm. And it's so important, the power of being able to visualize mm -hmm. what behaviors you want or, or what, what it actually is that people are part of because they can't belong to something unless they actually know what it is. They can see it, not only see it, but also feel it emotionally as well. So that whole ability to be able to use story and, and ways to visualize things is so important. I want to come back to, you were mentioning mirroring and mirroring is a really interesting one from an empathy point of view. Now, if someone's mirroring a bad behavior, should we mirror that back? It's just a question. Uh, I Well, you know, one part of my practice is obviously executive coaching and I definitely mirror bad behaviour because I think I think it's like the most powerful technique and you would know this, when you're teaching somebody about how they're coming across verbally and how they're showing up physically and verbally in, in terms of executive presence, what do you do? You film them, don't you? Mm. And that's the most confronting thing they've ever seen. <laughs> they've never, they've never, they probably haven't done what we do, Craig, which is hold the hairbrush and look at ourselves in the mirror um, to to prepare for our lines or when we talk to people, right, and get up on stage Correct. or whatever. Uh, exactly. So it's confronting. So I think mirror mirroring is a really important technique from both sides. One to mirror what's gone wrong and how they're coming across in a negative way, so they can see themselves and go, "Oh my God, I don't want to look like that." Uh, and then the second 
uh, part of it, of course, is mirroring so they can recreate those moments of greatness. Yes. And I think that's as important, you know, uh, and what we don't do enough of. I think um, I play a lot in that space. So as a shadow coach, I do a lot of shadow coaching. That's what it enables me to do when I'm working with my clients in real time and literally shadowing them for weeks on end, following them around like a Linus blanket um, to help them recreate those moments of greatness in real time. And so mirroring from both those sides, I think, is really powerful. But, of course, not for the faint-hearted, is it? Oh no! No, really <laughs> you need good. You need real good permission. You got to build permission first. So we do it with our speaker coaching, uh, for instance. Right. Okay. There you and, go. And you know, you've got three days with them. If you want to transform them, you've got to break the wiring. Like you can't just touch the wiring. You actually have to cut it off if you're going to help them grow and and break habits they've already created. And so we set it up. We like we we build the permission first, and we let them know by you know. This is a style of coaching you've never received before. It's going to agitate some of you. Some of you are going to hate me. Um, but you realize that it will come from a place of kindness. And I said, all I'm going to do is hold up a mirror and show you what I'm seeing. It's nothing personal. I'm just going to hold a mirror. And for mm-hmm. some of you, you'll find this very confronting. Some of you will find it a revelation and go, why has no one told me that before? Mm-hmm. And and it's fascinating to watch them squirm and to to realize, and then obviously then we shift the the coaching throughout the weekend to to bring in a lot more of the positive psychology and things like that along the way, and then make them feel really empowered. But they always come back to say, "I hated you on Friday, but I love you right now, and thank you for doing that." And it's so it is a skill, but you need to. It's important to train in it before you just go and mirror someone because <laughs> you, you've got to have the permission first. But I, I love it, Craig, because I think when you get them used to that or you expose them to that practice, let's call it a practice, it's a reflective mm-hmm. practice, um, visual reflective practice, it's so powerful. And I'm sure you're like myself where I'm committed to actually doing that to myself. Mm-hmm. I do it often. And I think when I'm, I will always review, you know, a, a show that I've done or get filmed uh, in a workshop right. like regularly. Um, it's a really important part of keeping your skills sharp yeah. and staying on point of where you're really nailing stuff, but also um, where there's a big opportunity for improvement. And it's that commitment, isn't it? It's the mindset, the growth mindset, and the commitment to I can always be better. I can always do better um, so that I can serve people better. And that's really what it's about for me. So I I, I do it all the time mm. and I hate it. I, don't, I can honestly tell you, it's not something I enjoy at all. Mm. I don't like looking at myself at all. But it is one of the most powerful forms of feedback that you can receive. And so it's almost like that um, that expression, you know, physician heal thyself. Yeah. If we are going to serve others in this space, we actually have to give ourselves the, the same medicine, I think, so we're not hypocrites. So I think that's important. We live it, oh. right? Hundred percent. We talk about nurturing rising talent as you know. You'd obviously would see this um, in athletes, um, musicians, yeah, um, and and certain other and and in the military, etc. Where we give feedback on a daily basis and a project by project or scenario by scenario basis, there is feedback not only yourself but there's a reflective. Uh, feedback from the entire team and, what, and what's involved 
And so how can we bring this more into organizations so it's not just a six month or a 12 month review that we're able to create a space where we can give the, the permission or the permission levels can be developed inside an organization. So they're regularly giving feedback because, you know, you talk about being a shadow coach. Being able to give that real-time feedback is, is phenomenal. Um, so I'd love to, I'd like to see more companies explore ways that they can uh, create a space where people can give feedback on a more consistent basis and not just project by project, but even in a meet, you know, even after a meeting, etc. How can we help each other? Because we can't always put a video camera in the room. No, one hundred percent. And I think it's a big blocker for organisational evolution as well. It's probably the number one thing that I see if I'm writing a culture diagnostic or I'm looking at all performance or org effectiveness. I I often find that nine times out of ten, if they were to simply move to a be able to move to a culture of feedback, consistent feedback. That, that would be actually a game changer but yeah. the issue that we have is we're afraid yeah. we're afraid to give the feedback okay and and we're not hardwired or naturally skilled as human beings to give feedback it's actually terrifying to mm. us to give feedback because of the fact that what it does is it forces us to confront ourselves when we give feedback to others right yes. it actually you know it affects our own self-concept thinking well who am i who am i to give you feedback so that's one part of it. So it affects our identity and our self-worth mm. that we're already. And the other piece is around, I want to be liked. So what happens if I give you the feedback and you don't love me tomorrow? Yeah. Um, and so there's a real fear around it. And it's interesting. There's some amazing work done by the um, the researcher, Dean Laplanche. I don't know if you've heard of him. He comes oh. from Factive. And he looked into what is one of the key kind of uh, predictors of safe of positive safety outcomes in the mining sector in, in Australia. And what he found was one of the key derailers was the was mateship cultures in Australia. And having mateship cultures in mining organizations was preventing people from giving each other feedback because they were scared about their relationship with their friends at work being ruined. Mm. And so people being maimed and killed in place of people telling their friends, hey, don't do that. Yeah. So that's scary. That's where we've gotten to. Hmm. Fascinating. We, we, we could dive into the space for a very, for more than an episode, I think, uh, which is fascinating. Now, in Australia and, and some other countries in the world, we have what we call tall poppy syndrome in, in mm. a way where, you know, someone gets very ambitious, someone achieves something great, and because we want to feel good, we will also people may want to feel good or I'm not sure what the other motivations are. They like to sort of bring them back down to earth, so to speak, uh, or, or their earth or what they feel. So they feel a bit more comfortable. Um, spending time in Canada versus and in the USA versus being here in Australia. Did you notice a big difference around how they the society approached people being ambitious? Oh, that is a loaded question, Craig. <laughs> um, and I'm going to be really honest with you, you know, yes, huge difference for me. So I, um, I'd come from a background in Australia where, look, absolutely, I was the tall poppy and I got slashed and burned my whole life, yeah, 
Um, and I won't get, get into that, but I even wrote a book on it, my first book. Um, and then uh, when I finished my postgraduate qualifications, I sent my CV out into the universe and I walked straight into a senior management role in Canada. So I was able to straight away start to evolve and achieve career success very quickly in another country mm. and be supported by men and women to be successful in my journey through my career versus in Australia, I was told, you're too young, what do you know, Here's you can do this and being offered jobs way below what I had trained for and being treated quite poorly. I remember going for a job with a, with a shipping corporation um, and being told that you're perfect for this role in leading in this particular management role. However, we're very concerned about how the men will relate to you. And so the, the sex, my gender also played a big card in Australia more than it did in North America, where I just felt like it was it was just me. My gender and my age never came into play. I worked, walked straight into a senior leadership role and of a big organisation. And within eight months of landing in Ottawa, so foreign country, I was promoted to the principal of that office and then three years later leading the whole eastern seaboard by the age of 31. So, you know, like it was very different for me and I loved working in North America, absolutely loved it. It was just a different ball game. And fortunately I'm still very connected to that, to those countries and Europe as well. Um, and I made the decision when I returned home to Australia that I would bring the world to me. Um, but I had to leave Australia to come back to get recognised. And I think that's really sad. Yeah, it makes me think about a situation. I've lived in five countries now and here in Australia, I had uh, went for a, a role for a CEO interview. Yeah. And you know, the, the recruiter was like, hands down, you are by far the best person. Other people in industry went, you're the right person in industry, uh, right person for that role. Um, the feedback I got from the lead, like the board of that organization were like, you have the most experience, you are the most, um, you're the right person for this role. The only exception is that we feel like you're going to influence us too quickly. So we're not going to uh, take you. Uh, I'm God. like, isn't that the one, isn't that one of like the top skills you want in a CEO, the ability to be able to influence? Mm -hmm. And so I just found that really fascinating that that there was a skill set that they went, you know what, it's it scares us in a way because we know we need to change, but we don't want to change mm -hmm. in a way. I, I just found that fascinating. Um, but back on ambition, you know, we, we've going through a phase in the education system around, um, you know, everyone's a winner. Uh, it, it's okay to be mediocre in a way. You, you look at the Weetbix Kids Triathlon where everyone gets a medal, which is great. And, and, it, and it's a great event, but we've taken away, you know, a lot of competitiveness in sports, for instance, and I'll just use that as an example. 
um, to focus more around everyone feeling good or supposedly feeling good. Um, but, uh, but to me, it teaches people that it's just okay just to be normal and to not try and be ambitious and go for goals in a way. Um, so for you, what was the big reason behind writing the book, Unreasonable Ambition? Okay. Well, I'll start by just commenting on what you said, because I think it's a really important comment because it leads, leads into the book. I think that the generation um, that we are cultivating right now is soft. And I think that giving everybody a medal is not real life. The, the reality is there are winners and losers in life and to be able to build real grit and resilience, kids have to learn how to lose. That's what shapes us, win, winning and losing and being okay with both, learning how to evolve and adapt to both. And so, you know, I think about, um, and I will answer your question, but I think about the smashed avocado generation phenomenon right and all this commentary around you know the fact that people kids are still living at home and yet they're going out and spending 22 dollars on avocado on toast we've taken the pain out of we're trying to take the pain out of life for our for the next generation mm. you know think about our cashless spending or painless the painless spend experience where we can just tap a card and not feel the pain of handing over hard-earned cash as well why does that teach us to respond how does that teach us to deal with life which is not all rainbows it's big storms as well and so ambition is about feeling it all and knowing that you've got this ambition is about having ambitions that might be viewed by others as otherwise unreasonable because they mean something to you they're bigger than you are and doing it anyway whether you win or you fail, giving it a go, knowing that you will figure it out. Mm. And that is really what it's about, giving it a go, irrespective of whether you have all the answers or not, knowing that you're most likely going to fail at first instance, but doing it anyway. That's ambition. I, I love that. I love that approach. Uh, I was actually talking and it's on a similar path here. I was talking to someone the other day and, uh, you know, we need to go do this to find ourselves. And I was like, no, you need to go get lost first to understand what that means before you can find yourself. And, you know, it was, it was in to do with travel. And I'm like, I, I'm looking forward to my daughter when she turns three years old and I'm, we're going to pack a bag each and we're going to go down to the airport and we're going to select the first flight that is available and it'll take us wherever it takes us and it'll be a one-way ticket. So my wife probably won't like it, <laughs> but, but I, I want that opportunity to go get lost to them to, to then figure out what we do once we get there. There'll be no, uh, no accommodation book, nothing like that. And it is, it's the same thing when it comes to ambition in a way. You know, when we look at that, we, we need to be able to lose to understand what it really means to win. You know, those people that can just win from day one means they're not pushing themselves out of their comfort zone in a way. Uh, so I find that fascinating. I love what you were speaking about there, Craig. And I often say to people, sometimes you have to lose yourself to find yourself. And I, 
absolutely agree that. And a lot of the work that I do is about saying to people, disrupt yourself, choose disruption, self-disruption to be able to evolve, to be able to be your best self, choose the road less traveled. That's how we become everything that we're capable of. Um, And so that's a big part of the work that I do is around helping people to lose themselves, you know, and feel the discomfort, choose the discomfort over the comfort. Because I know that they will sort it out. I know that they will evolve and they will adapt. They don't know it, but I know it. And I think that's probably one of the biggest fears I I have with everything we've been through as, as a race through the pandemic. Because the pandemic was so vital and enlightening in showing humanity what they were capable of, that they could adapt and and evolve beyond what they thought was possible. And we don't want to go back to the default position of fear. That's a real worry that I have, to be honest. You know, you've got this. You've shown yourself. The pandemic has shown you what you, you are capable of. Stay with that confidence. Stay with that confidence and keep going. Don't, don't go back. Please don't go back. <laughs> That's right. Because so, you go back, if you go back to something, you're going to continue getting the same results you've always got. You know, if you don't change, don't learn from, from something in a way, then you'll just continue being and playing in that space. Well, um, it is because real transformation happens when we're not in charge, mm. right? That's that's the reality. You've got to let go. Yes. When you let go, transformation happens, right? But it means shedding and letting go of so much. And I find it really interesting when I'm working with teams and they're saying, V, people call me V, that equipment is VV. They say, you know, um, we're frightened. We don't know how to step into this new operating context. It's going too fast. We're stressed out. We can't come up with new ideas. How do we solve for climate change? Just one of my clients don't know what to do. And there's no belief. And when I go back, I do this little activity with them and I say, I want you to do a, a timeline of your life and think about the sliding door moments that have created the leader you are created the leader you are today. Let's give those a name. Talk me through your timeline and choose a word or a leadership attribute that aligns to that moment that you went through, whether it be positive or negative, that shaped you. And then I do a big kind of constellation on the wall and I put all the words up and I say, so here's who you are as a team. Here's what you've got to draw from. So I don't understand why you're having a meltdown right Mm. now. Everything you need is right here. 100%. Right? Why have you forgotten where you've come from? You're already there. So stop and draw from that. You've got a blind spot. And when you take people on that journey, that little exercise that I share with you, they say, holy crap, wow, I I actually know this. And I say, yeah, you know it. But more importantly, there's someone on your team or the collection or the constellation of all of you that creates an amplification of what's already there. So it's about moving beyond your individual giftedness towards harnessing that collective brilliance. And that's how we sh- how we make that shift. When you recognize that when you tap into and draw from the constellation, you're gonna be even better. It's not just to get over yourself. Uh, and that's kind of the secret to that, I think, in terms of realizing your ambitions 
is showing up, knowing what you have, relying on others, um, and having you know those lofty ambitions that can only be solved by all of us because that's what it's going to take. Mm, love it, love it, love it, love it. Okay, let's go back because I'm not sure if we answered this question and it was around uh, what was the reason behind writing unreasonable ambition? And I'm probably going to add yes. just something in here. Was there a specific moment where you realized this yourself? Yeah. I mean, the first piece is I was asked a question by, which I thought was really interesting, by one of my um, female executive mentees. Um, so I'm a, I'm a mentor for women in mining here in Western Australia. And one of my mentees said to me, you know, I hear all the things that you do and I hear what you've done. How do you walk into a room with people who are far more kind of successful, you know, she said it like this, than you are? <laughs> oh, uh, you know, from different occupations, from different industries and not be afraid and hold your own and feel like you have something to contribute. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I know, firstly, my first reaction, my ego kicked in. I thought, well, how dare you tell me that, I have, that I'm not doing well because obviously I am doing well to be in the room. But I stopped myself. I thought, okay, well, that's a really interesting question because she's looking at me wondering how I get a seat at the table. Why am mm -hmm. I invited and that forced me to think about what the answer was for that. And the answer was or is unreasonable ambition. And that is that um, I am always uh, seeking to evolve myself. I am somebody who doesn't see power distance. I'm somebody who is on this earth to help to evolve humanity. And I'm very conscious of the specific skill set that I have that adds value. And so where I landed is here, identify your gifts, um, access them and use them. And that's what I've done. Throughout my life, I've been able to do those three things. And I think that makes the difference to somebody who's able to truly capitalise on everything they bring to this world and someone who doesn't. And I'm driven by a higher calling, right? I want to make the world better. I want to help humans evolve to be all that they can be and be their best when it matters the most. And so that's kind of my backstory around that. And that's what I step into. Um, and so when I take the focus off myself, because it's not about me, mm. it's got nothing to do with me, and I focus on what I what the world needs me to do, that's the answer to that question. What does the world need from me? And how do I utilize my gifts to help others? get there and that's why i get to be at the table that's how i see it anyway i love this um all right so we, we talk about a concept called create an ecosystem not an ego system mm. right so it's about how, how do you balance collective worth versus self-worth and as you would know ego tends to get a bad name but it's not really the problem because we all have ego and we do need to we do need to boost the ego of someone and boost the ego of ourselves, but not to a space where it goes into egotistical. So when you look at unreasonable ambition, how do we balance that building mm. up of our own self-worth? Because we do need self-worth to, to be able to have the courage to be ambitious and mm. to be able to show we know what we're actually talking about and doing versus mm. that collective worth and thinking about what's important for everyone here and understanding everyone else. 
Yeah. So I think from an, let's talk about the ego perspective. It's not about having an ego. It's about having a very strong self-concept and that's different. The strong self-concept is I know who I I am, uh, warts and all. I've got great self-awareness. I know what I can do and I know what I can't do, right, from a skills perspective and a gifts perspective. And I'm very clear with my clients, here's where I play, here's where I don't play, Mm. right? I'm absolutely so in your face about that. I know what that looks like. And so I say to people, self-concept is this is what you're good at, this is where you suck because we've all got that and own it, right? So good self-concept. But in the areas that I that I know or that I feel confident in, I'm, I'm very confident and I have courage in those things. The other piece is around um, good, having a good self-concept but also being prepared to ask for help mm. right, in the areas that you that you don't know about. And then the collective piece is around even if I don't know the answers, and this goes back to good self-concept but not being egocentric, I know I can figure it out because I will ask people to contribute to help me get to and evolve and realize that higher calling. And that's what I, that's the shift is I'm, I'm in this space, but I know I can achieve more with others. And so it's understanding the difference, but it's that confidence and courage to know that even if I don't have the answers, I can figure it out and being confident in that space because I, um, I capitalize on the gifts and skills of others. And that's the difference. Okay. So how do, how do we, uh, this is a probably, it's a very big question because it could be approached many ways in a way, but let's see if we can give me some examples of um, a mindset shift into someone being more unreasonably ambitious. So say, you know, there's someone that tends to hold back a little bit. They, they probably take, um, they, they put other people first they want to keep the status quo because they don't want to be put in a position where tall poppy syndrome kicks in. Um, how can people become shift to a mindset of being unreasonable, um, unreasonably ambitious? Well, it's a, it's a, that's a big question, right? And what I say to people is, so I'll, I'll give, I'll explain it this way, and I hope it answers your question. Uh, one of the biggest fears people have is public speaking. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's a lot of anxiety about getting up and speaking in public. But why is that? Why are people anxious about public speaking? They're anxious about public speaking because they make it about them. Correct. It's the same the ambition. If you take the onus off yourself and say, I'm going to speak about this topic that I'm passionate about because I'm here to help others in the space. And, and I, uh, so to do that and to help others, I'm going to make myself a target so that it benefits the world. When you take it off you mm-hmm. and make it about how you're servicing others, the anxiety tends to dissipate a lot more. And that's the same with ambition. It's how you realise unreasonable ambitions, even when you're afraid. So quick example, very quick, and I know we're running out of time. My girlfriend, single mum, gets approved for adoption for a baby. 15 months in, she gets the notification that she can go and pick up her child. And then an earthquake, the deadliest of this century, hits in Haiti. Okay. She calls me despondent, desperate, obviously. And I say to her, Marie Claude, the biggest thing we need to achieve here is getting your daughter out of Haiti, right? She said, yes. I could have cracked in that moment and sympathized with her. Mm-hmm but I didn't 
I said, I understand. I, I really get how you're feeling. I know you're upset, but let's focus on the bigger picture here. We need to get your daughter out, right? So we thought about all the people we'd worked with that could help, politicians, Air Canada, CBC, all the journos. And we made a few calls and to cut a long story short, influenced journalists, CBC, Air Canada, and two weeks after the earthquake struck, managed to get 200 Haitian children out of Haiti from the orphanage, courtesy of Air Canada. Wow. Now let's think about that. That's that's an example of unreasonable ambition. Did I know how I was going to help her turn the situation around and get kids out of Haiti? No. No. <laughs> know the answer to that. But here's what I did know. I started to think about all the people that I knew that could help and that I could influence where I had control. Uh, my love for my friend and her daughter drove me to find an answer that went beyond myself and overcome my fear and self-limiting beliefs. I didn't think for one second that I couldn't do it. I had no choice. I had to believe that I could. And we did. So it's that piece around your motivators, your belief in a higher purpose, you're being driven by something other than yourself, something unreasonable and bigger ambition that drives you to overcome your own limitations, even in those moments where you would normally freak out. And that's what you have to tap into. I didn't have the answers, but I figured it out. Mm. It might not have worked, but I had to try. Even if I failed, at least I tried. Doing something is better than doing nothing. And I think that's the point. Love it, love it. And we can continue this on for, for a long time. But for those wanting to know more about Unreasonable Ambition, you can check out Vanessa's book and uh, all good bookstores. Vanessa, we know all, we know, we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, gosh, when did I do something for the first time? Oh, that's I, can't, I don't really have an answer to that question. I have to think about it. Um, probably swam with whale sharks. That was the <laughs> overcame my fear and swam with whale sharks up at Ningaloo Reef, which was terrifying and awe-inspiring all at the same time. I'm glad I did, though. It's one of those moments where when you, again, when you confront your fears around doing something like that, you feel invincible for a little while, which was a great feeling. Love it. Love it. What is the one question you would love to solve? Climate change, energy transition. How do we save our planet for for people mm. and for human beings? You know, heard uh, Muhammad Yusuf saying recently, Nobel Peace Prize winner, people act as if we're in a, a the world is, is a burning house where people are having a, a party on the inside. And I think that is a very foretelling mm. comment to make. I would like to be able to find the solution to helping our planet survive for generations to come. And that's what I'm focused on with a couple of uh, my clients right now. How do we help solve for that? And that's definitely unreasonably ambitious. Yes, I love it. Uh, to you, what is an inspiring great leader? And who's a great example of this? Oh, Ronnie Khan. 
I don't know if you know who that is, Ronnie Khan from Oz Harvest. Yes. It's an extraordinary woman, woman who has overcome all of um, her self-limiting beliefs, all of her uh, what she was born into. She's risen above her life circumstances to create a business and a life that is truly extraordinary and gives back to society. Um, and she does it all by being herself and unapologetically her. And I just love her. I think she's amazing. Humble, beautiful, self-effacing, courageous, visionary, creative, and unreasonably ambitious. Love it. <laughs> this has been an outstanding conversation. Vanessa, how can people learn more about you and what is the best way to connect with you? I'm on LinkedIn, or you can go to my website, uh, reinventionconsulting.com.au. Uh, also available on social media, Facebook, Instagram, reach out. I'd love to hear from you. And I'd love to hear any questions you had after the podcast today. What lights you up? What are your unreasonable ambitions? What would you do if you weren't afraid? Now, there's the question I'd like to hear the answer to. Oh, I love it. Vanessa, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today to learn about your journey uh, from growing up there in Western Australia to being a very young CEO uh, in Canada to helping people make a big shift in the way they think about not only themselves, other people, but also advance humanity. Thank you very much for sharing your insights into uh, unreasonable ambition. And I look forward to many more conversations in the future because I think you are one truly remarkable human being and I love your ambition. Go bigger, go bolder. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Craig. It's been just so much fun. I've loved being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong.